Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, 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 wonderful people. I hope you're hungry or you will be after this exciting guest I have today. His name is Chef Des, and he is a government certified Red Seal chef, national food columnist, cookbook author, and culinary instructor in BC for 20 years. Chef Des is known for his passion for working with people and his even greater passion for food. After finally deciding to pursue a culinary career at age 27, he worked through years of intense intense kitchen training to achieve his goal of being a certified chef. His real name is, here I go, Gordon Desarmo. (laughs) Did I get it? You got it. (laughs) Awesome. But his nickname became Des, and thus his stage name became Chef Des upon entering his culinary career. His teachings are regarded as motivational and inspirational. Thousands have rekindled their romance for the culinary arts because of his infectious enthusiasm for bringing ingredients together. So far to date, he has written five cookbooks and one motivational book in order to help share his passion. Chef Des works from his home office and lives with his family in the Fraser Valley of British Columbia, where I live, and is devoted is a devoted husband and father of four wonderful children. He also works as a representative for Big Green Egg and a corporate chef for BC Egg. Welcome to the Ramble. Hey, thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. We have flown so close to each other for so many years and never <laughs> crossed paths. I know, odd, isn't it? How, did you ever attend the uh, the, like the BC? Or sorry, the the Abbotsford Chamber of Commerce events or like the B- Business Excellence events there? No, never. No. Okay, so it wouldn't have been there, but differently because I grew up in Abbotsford. And were you always in the neighboring Mission, or were you in Abbotsford at one point? Abbotsford for a period of time as well. So Abbotsford Mission area, yeah, for sure. Wonderful. And I kept hearing all about you, all about you. And then my mother had you cook at her house, I believe, right? Uh, To do one of your your live cooking performances there. And I was invited to that event, I'm pretty sure. And for some reason, couldn't make it. Uh, So (laughs) I have not tasted your amazing cooking. Well, we got to change that, right? I know we must, we must change that. You know, when my podcast is, uh, Closer to Joe Rogan's, maybe we can just do a live cooking event slash conversation. How does that sound? Sounds great. I've wanted you on this podcast since I started. It's new. And I said, I wanted a really cool chef. And the reason I wanted a really cool chef was because I wanted to be a chef and never had the talent and never even really pursued it. But it's like the most romantic job I think I can possibly think of maybe sommelier, <laughs> sommelier, sommelier, sommelier and yeah. chef. And I got to thinking as I was reading about you, you know, you grew up cooking, yeah, but you didn't actually become a chef until 27. And right. I was curious just, you know, how you came into this career and, and if there was a gap in the middle as to why it was 27 uh, before you became a chef. So tell me a little bit about how, how Chef Des came to be Chef 
Chef Des became Chef Des. <laughs> well, I'm glad you have a, a long podcast because, man, it's, it's a really long story. But when I was a kid, I loved to cook, right? And so I just, like everybody who likes to cook, I just sort of cook to my spare time. You know, it's sort of like, hey, it's something fun to do. It's a hobby. And that sort of stuck with me. But when I was in in high school, so even during high school, I worked at a few restaurants, uh, just, you know, part-time, so on and so forth. And when I was out of high school, a little bit as well. But when I was in high school, uh, I was really good at numbers. So math and accounting. I actually took the first college year course of accounting in grade 12, and I averaged 98% for the year and straight A's in math. So I was thinking with my head instead of my heart, thinking, you know, I need to be an accountant. That's what that's what my calling is, right? And so I got married young and was pursuing a CGA. So I was going to have my CGA. And so we were, we had an apartment in Abbotsford and I was driving from UBC for my courses. And I sat down after my taxation exam. So I'm a third year CGA. I sat down after my taxation exam, sitting there just by myself in the room. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> this is going to be my whole life. Hey, nothing, nothing wrong about, you know, the accountants that are out there, but you know, I could just picture my gravestone. He was an accountant. Mm. And it's like, this is just not me. I enjoy numbers and I'm good at it, but it's just not me. It's not, not a way for me to uh, reveal my personality to the world by being an, an accountant. So all the way home from UBC that was for thinking about it, think about it, think about it. And I got home and said to my wife at the time, so I'm, I'm divorced and remarried, but uh, said to my wife at the time, you know what? She's, well, she asked me, how did the exam go? And I said, well, it was great. I think I aced it, but <laughs> no problem. So our whole goal was uh, I was going to be this rich, successful accountant. She was going to be the stay-at-home mom and there's our life in a nutshell, right? Mm -hmm. And so I had uh, come up with a different plan and I said, well, the, the test was good, but uh, I don't think I want to be an accountant anymore. She's like, what do you mean? Like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. Yeah. Rattled off all the cliches. You only, you only live once, all this sort of stuff, do what you love. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I think maybe I should become a chef. She says, you're not becoming a chef, you know, little to get paid. And we're now divorced and I'm a chef. So <laughs> there's more to it than that, but it's, it's kind of comical to sort of describe it that way. But anyway, can I, can I interject just to, just really quickly? Yeah. Des, I just, I, because I think that you're hitting on something really important. Okay. And we will, we will segue right back into the rest of your story, but this ability to recognize that you needed to listen to your heart yeah, is, is something that is a crossroads. So many people face, certainly at the time you faced it, I faced it, but then it kind of rears its head later. And again, if you haven't listened to it, so how did you, I guess, muster the courage or to, to do it, to actually say it with clarity and distinction and, and action, I'm actually going to go this different path. Well, it actually took me a while after that. I mean, uh, I don't know. It really just hit me at that moment thinking this is not what I want to do and started soul searching to find out what I really want to do. And we had that conversation and then I decided, you know what, maybe not jump right into that. So I went into uh, marketing and public speaking and um, advertising, and I ended up owning a gas station with my wife at the time. We, I, I was working for Mohawk Oil, okay, in the head office, 
And the opportunity was to own a franchise. So we went into that owning a gas station. And our marriage was not the best and kept going downhill. And we tried to save it. And basically, in the end, uh, we couldn't. And so basically, I was left going bankrupt because we owned it. We had to dissolve the business. And I went bankrupt. And I had nothing. So I had zero starting from nothing. So, you know, had two kids and a wife, didn't have them anymore. Uh, went to living in a bachelor suite uh, with nothing, collected my first welfare check ever. Huh. And it, it was a tough pill to swallow. So at that point there, that's when I decided because I had lost everything. And I'm not saying that I lost everything because someone took it away from me. A lot of it was my own decision as well, but I had nothing. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to start something and follow my heart, this is the time to do it. Cause any, any, anything I worked for in the past was gone. I say so, that, uh, they say rock bottom is the, is the most solid ground to build from. Yeah, you got it. You got it. <laughs> and just, it's just, just everything hit me that year. You know, I went from a, had a brand new 95 Mustang GT to a $400 lime green Nova. That was a 1974 Nova. Oh man. And, uh, you know, walking into that welfare office to collect a welfare check was just a real eye opener because I was self-employed. I couldn't collect EI. So, uh, yeah, and hadn't had nothing and I had to rebuild from the ground up at that point. So Thank yeah, you. that was hard. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, we're, we're in deep and already, and we're both, you know, we're both entrepreneurs and I, I have stared bankruptcy in the face so many times and it is for no ability of my own that it didn't happen, but I know from being so close to it and having to, in my past, uh, do one of those debt consolidations, uh, when I had my, my first company, and it was floundering and, and I had to do a debt consolidation just to get by. Right. I know how crippling, crippling it is. In my case, I felt emasculated. You know, that's just my, how I personally felt as, as being able to be a provider. And, and, and so how did you internally find this, the optimism, I guess, to step, continue to step forward every day and to step into what you you know, was what was calling you, even if you didn't know exactly it. Right. Well, how I stepped forward was my, uh, my best friend. I've known since grade four, Dave. And, uh, at that time when that was happening, we had our 10 year reunion coming up at high school. And, uh, he said, are you, are you going? I'm not going to go. I mean, you were going to, what have you done in 10 years? Oh, let me tell you, I collected my first welfare check. I, this, did you see that lime green note in the parking lot? That's my, that's my baby right there. So, you know, when you look at people that are like 28, 27, 28 years old, and you're going back for your 10 reunion, everybody wants to make an impression. So I said, I, I, I'm not going, there's no way I'm going to go. And I, and I never did, but he told me something at that time. And he said to me, he says, look, you have done so much in the 10 years, owning your own business and being so successful and, and everything that a lot of people won't even do that, won't even attempt what you have done. And I guarantee you just give it some time, you're going to be back where you were and tenfold more than what you were. 
And it's so true. And I listened to him and I just said, you know what? I need to move forward and just believe in this guy that is, is coming at me, not only as a friend, but just a, a, as a mentor, whether, whether he thought it was a mentor or not, he really was and really helped me out. You know, I, yeah, I can feel you. <laughs> I feel you so much on that. And uh, it is sometimes like, you know, no matter all the self-help books, it's just, or all of that, it's just sometimes the people in our life who pick us up. Yeah. Just dust us off a little bit and over and over again, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Because being in this, if somebody win anything, right. Does like, if anybody decides to pursue, whether it's, it's their own venture artistically uh, or a business venture creatively, or it's, it's inside a career, there's so many landmines in life. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's, it's just, nobody needs to be a superhero. Nobody is a superhero other than the, you know, other than the moments when people actually pick us up. And we have, I've, I've found, maybe you found it, maybe you haven't in the, in the, in the world of social media, although it's kind of obvious, I, I, everyone looks like one. And in reality, it's, you know, it's the people behind the scenes in the moments that aren't on camera that make all the difference in people's lives to bring us along on our own journey, you know? Absolutely. I imagine that's where some of your, uh, the, the idea that you've also, or sorry, not the idea, but the fact that you've actually written a motivational book and yet you're, there's inspiration and there's motivation in how you present what you do, not just here's how you cook something. It must, it must have some roots in all that you've had to overcome and the, the humility, compassion, courage that you've had to, you know, find to overcome it, man. I, sorry. I've just kind of taken a back already. It's just, I didn't, I didn't expect hey, we're just, we're just getting started. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm well, I'm now I'm very, very, very glad that, that we made this happen. You mentioned in your bio that when I was reading it, intense kitchens and it, and it, it came to me, I read Eric repairs book. Eric repair is uh, for those of you who don't know, he was Anthony, one of Anthony Bourdain's best friends. Um, he was on Parts Unknown all the time. And he has at least one Michelin star restaurant in New York. I can't, for the life of me, I can't think of the name. Anyway, he talks about his, his sort of coming into becoming a chef in the French kitchens. And that was the first time I'd read just how horrific these kitchens are, how much of a rite of passage it, it almost is to suffer through. So was that your, did you have a similar experience when you finally stepped into the cooking world to at the bottom? <laughs> well, not really, not like that. I mean, you also read like Gordon Ramsay's bio, same, same sort of thing, right? Yeah. He, the, the stuff he went through and stuff is just crazy. So no, not to that degree, not at all. But you know, when you are starting your career all over, you're 27 years old, you're, you know, trying to get back in the kitchen. So I'll I'll tell you how this happened. It started actually at Earl's restaurant. So there was a local Earl's restaurant in Abbotsford. There's no longer anymore. It used to be, uh, you know, where the Freshco is now used to be across the street, actually where the bulk barn is. It's a CIBC now it's a bank. Uh, Yeah. Well, that one there, but this was even prior to that Earl's prior to that. So the, where the, for the bulk barn is now, that's what, that was an Earl's there. And I went in there because I knew they trained people to Red Seal level. Mm -hmm. And it was just a a solid, although franchises, but solid uh, business concept model, right? And somewhere I could get in that's local. I I lived in Abbotsford Mm -hmm. and somewhere I could just walk to if I wanted to. 
and start, start my training. And I, I went in there, I talked to the chef and he's looking at my resume and he says to me, I'm, I'm not going to hire you. And I said, well, why? Said, like, can you tell me why? And he says, well, you just came off owning your own business at the time. You know, this was, uh, I guess, 95 and uh, 1995, making over hundred grand a year. And in 95, uh, in 95. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, walking in there, wanting a job in the kitchen, he says, all I can offer you is a minimum wage. I can't even guarantee you full time. And you got to start off the dish pit. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to start training you. You're going to quit. I said, I'm not going to quit. You don't understand. I really want to do this. And I've had a calling and so on and so forth. I, I really want to pursue this. And he says, sorry, I just not the place for you. And I had no other place to go. You know, I couldn't go into Vancouver. It was way too far of a commute. I didn't have the money for the gas, let alone have a reliable car to do that. Yeah. So I just kept going back there. Resume in hand, kept putting the resume in. Hey, how you doing? Hey, anybody yet? Anybody, any spots open yet? And kept putting the resume. So at my fourth time coming in there, he said, look, I'm going to give you a chance. But if you quit on me, I'm going to be so pissed off. You, know, you don't understand. I'm not going to quit. Thank you for the opportunity. When can I start? And so he started and I just, I just worked hard. I just worked hard. So here, here you, I am 27 years old. Um, and I say kids because, you know, the guys working there, you know, 18, 19, 20, you know, early twenties. And here I am 27 starting washing dishes in there. Right. And everybody was welcoming and stuff like that. It was good, but I just worked hard. I just worked hard. I showed up for an hour before my shift, every shift. And some of the guys are like, well, Dad, you're not starting yet, man. Well, why are you here? Oh, that's all good. Just want to make sure my station's all, all good. And obviously the head chef picks up on that sort of stuff. Right. And started promoting me up the line past these other guys have been there for a while and made a couple enemies. And one guy just was really nasty to me. And then basically I just called him on. I said, like, what the hell's your problem, man? Wow. Shit. I'll tell you what my problem is. And sorry for swearing. Oh, no, this is fun. Uh, you know, I've been here for so many years and you come in the picture and now you're zooming past me and stuff like that. And I said to him, I said, look, man, you ever go to university ever take any, you know, post-secondary school? I says, yeah. And he's like looking at me and I said, did you have homework? He said, yeah, I had homework. Did, did, they, did they pay for you to go to school? Did, they, did the school pay you to do homework? No. Why? Like, why would they pay me to do homework? I said, I show up here an hour early every single day. You show up here right at the time when your clock says you have to start. I'm here an hour early because I want to make sure my station set, set up. It's cost me nothing to dedicate that extra hour to my shift. Cost me nothing at all. It's like doing homework. Right. No one's paying me to come here early, but it shows them that I'm dedicated, shows them that I don't care about my time is worth nothing compared to this job and doing a good job. And that's how I've moved ahead. And he looked at me and you can almost see the light bulb go off in his head. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. And, and, and I hate to classify. I hate even using the term millennials, but I, I just get the feeling that that sort of work ethic is lost now. Well, that's uh, I, I was I was watching a Bill Maher clip mean? the other day, real time. You know, one of the most iconic uh, political commentators, you know, comedians in, in the United States, and he was saying one of the most common phrases, or or at least expectations among young millennial producers in Hollywood is, "How come I haven't been promoted to producer?" And you juxt I again, we're not. I'm not. You or I are not. I'm a millennial. We're not blanketing all millennials into one category here. 
But then you you juxtapose that to a guy named Mo Fallon, who was a um, he was a producer on Parts Unknown. Uh, sorry, a cameraman on Parts Unknown. Again, top top TV show when Anthony Bourdain was alive in in the United States. And the hustle and the willingness that that guy put in when he became kind of a assistant of an assistant of an assistant of Michael Mann, you know, one of the top directors in Hollywood, that what he suffered through to put himself in a position to one day be able to call himself, you know, a cameraman and then later a director of, you know, top show. They're just, it's, it's a mentality. He went into the business with the expectation of I'm going to work my ass off and that's it. I'm going to do my homework. Like you said, and you just keep hearing this and hearing this and hearing this at our generation. And I've been guilty of this myself. Just when, when, how come I'm not, you know, and, and it kind of brings in Des, I don't know if you're you know, familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, but it just talks about, you know, we're entitled to the work. It's about the work. It's not about the result. Our, our purpose is built in the work. And it sounds like, I mean, did you learn that Des, or did, did, did your mom teach it to you? Did, did somebody along the way say, focus on the work and that's it? Not, not necessarily like that. Just being early for everything is what my mom taught me. So mm-hmm. I remember being a kid, I don't know how old I was, 12 or something. And, you know, back then in those days, you just get on your bike, you ride, you come home when it's dinner time and yeah. there's no cell phones. There's no way of keeping track of where your kids are or whatever. And, and one time I lost track of time. And I got home and dinner was already served. My mom was panicked thing. And she's like, where the heck were you? And all that, you don't realize what time it was. And I said, ah, sorry, I, didn't, I had no idea. And I'd never gotten in trouble for before because I was always, you know, on time. And she said, she said to me, one of the most important things to know in life is that it's better to me an hour early than a minute late for anything. And that's going to play a big part in your job going forward so on and so forth. So I've really just taken that to the extreme. I'm, I'm a very literal matter of fact guy. Like you tell me something and I'm going to hold you to it right to the letter. Mm-hmm. Otherwise don't tell me that. Right. Because it just doesn't make any sense to me. That's how I compute things. Just very matter of fact. So she's said that to me and I've taken it to the extreme and held it with everything I do, whether it's personal, my wife and the kids will tell you the same thing, man, you're always so early. We get here early. Then we just have to sit here and wait better to be early than late though. You know, so and, how, where did the work one come from then? Like, how did you develop this very, that, that the homework analogy that you used is, it was quite impactful to me. And I'm, I'm just very curious how you developed this mindset. It just stems from that, you know, just stems from, you know, being early for everything. And it really played a part early in my career prior to me being, you know, 27 and starting my career all over again, that it has always worked for me. It's always worked. Like I, you know, I, my first job out of high school for, sorry, first full-time job was just working at a gas station. So minimum wage was three sixty-five an hour. It's close to my home where I was living with my parents and just started working there. And I was just always early again, just doing that same mindset. And shortly after that, the Mohawk station in Cloverdale was hiring full-time and they were willing to pay five bucks an hour. I thought, wow, this is big time. I'm going from three sixty-five an hour to five bucks an hour. I'm going to jump on it. 
And I work my butt off. And again, same thing, coming in early and, and guys, same thing. Like, hey, you're not starting yet. That's okay. It's all right. Just want to make sure I'm set up and get, sort of get a feel for the vibe of the, of the place, what everybody's you know moods are like and so on and so forth. And, and people thought I was nuts, but it got me promoted to shift supervisor, got me promoted into management. And and it just always worked for me right from my very first job. So just something I just gravitated to and just held on to because I thought, you know what, this does work. And I'm just going to keep doing this throughout my whole life. And now as an entrepreneur, as you know, you're always working, you're always thinking, you're always, you know, there's something, something that you have to discover and you want to get, bring your business to the next level or something has failed and you want to recover from that, so on and so forth. So you're just always constantly working. So I'm, I don't know, <laughs> early for my life in all respects, right? Oh, it's, there's, there's almost something, I don't know, I don't know what the, I think about when I was a runner and I think about when you mentioned the homework thing and I think about the warm up. you know, if you look at the job, like the race, when the gun goes off, you know, nobody's paying you for the warm up, but the warm up prepares you to stand on that starting line for when it's go time. That's right. And you know, like I, you know, before I write, you know, or do something creative or with a lot of intention, I try and clean off my desk a little bit, declutter my space, just feel, feel ready, not procrastination, yeah, preparation. And right. it sounds like there may be something similar. It's like, and, and obviously, you know, you're showing, you're showing that those, you know, who you really are. And, and I think, because I, again, I have a fascination with, with chefs and I was listening to a few on other podcasts and that was a common theme, this idea of show up early, stay late, show who you are without the expectation, but by default, you do get noticed. And, you know, I'm curious, very, very curious. How did you transition? Because for those, you know, think of, for those in the U S listening or around the world, you know, Earl's is like, it was an awesome place to hang out. It's kind of your TGI Fridays, maybe a little bit nicer, you know, just a, a chain restaurant with consistent quality. Absolutely. But you then transition to being a full-blown chef and doing cooking shows. So how did you transition from that very formulaic environment into a more creative environment um, as a chef? Uh, again, a long story, and and please feel free to interject as you have. This is a great conversation. I like I like this a lot. So I was with Earls for a number of years and got promoted to uh, night coach. So you go through the ranks of the night team, and I was night coach. And then at that point, the chef, the one that hired me, he got selected to open the brand new Earls location in Richmond, BC, at the Lansdowne Mall. So he had to pick his team and he chose me to come and be on his day team. So you, after you do all the shifts on, on the night shift, which is all the, all the stations online and you get the, the top uh, night shift line position is night coach. So you're running the night shift and by being night coach, you get the bills on the line that come off the printer and you have to look at your team and you have to call to your team. Okay. You know, I'm ordering this from you, ordering this from you in order for all the meals to come up at once for that one bill on that one table times it by, you know, 10 or 20 tables at once and so on and so forth. So you're well rehearsed in all the positions. And so he picked me to help open the brand new restaurant and get trained on the day team. So the day team is all the prep stuff. So you get in there early, you, you work as a baker or a saucier, 
uh, so on and so forth to get all the meals ready to go sort of thing. You work the lunch rush and then you transition out of your day as the night team comes on. And so I, I was selected for that, worked through all the day shift positions up to assistant day coach, which is sort of like not sous chef, but assistant sous chef sort of thing, if you were to put it in, in layman's terms in the, in the culinary world. And then at that point, it, it was fun and everything was still good, but I was just realizing that, you know what, all the menus are just the same, no matter what it rolls, there's no flexibility flexibility in food. There's no creativity. I got to follow. Everything has to follow because if you eat the one in North Vancouver, it has to be the same as the one in Richmond. It has to be the same as the one in Abbotsford. They can't have any variations whatsoever. And I just wanted to grab hold of it a little bit more. So at the time I had moved to Surrey, so it was a little bit closer to Richmond for the commute. And we're giving we're giving Olympia the Fraser Valley the whole, the whole regional <laughs> geography of all the cities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then uh, when I was in Surrey, that the only place like I wanted to work at a at a kitchen that was a little bit more higher end and had that creativity, I could sort of explore. And the only place there was uh, that I could think of that was big was the Sheraton Guilford Hotel. And at the time, there were four and a half stars in the restaurant. There wasn't anything else around there, right? This big skyscraper hotel. It was yeah. it was pretty cool. So I went in there, resume in hand, same sort of thing. It was almost comical how similar it was for me trying to get on Earl's and, and went in there and he's looking at my resume. It's like, oh, man, all you got is Earl's on here. You know, I had a couple of restaurants from when I was in high school, but I said, I uh, sold them. I said, you don't understand. Like, I really want to do this. And he looked at the age of me and looked at my resume and says, sorry, I got nothing for you. Right. And I just kept doing the same thing, just going in there, dropping off my resume. Hey, tell the chef I say hi. And so when somebody gave their notice, my resume was top of mind and he gave me a call. And he said, you know what? I'll give you a shot, but I don't know if you can handle it. I said, I, I can handle it. I'll do it. Right. And so I went in there and everything was great. And, uh, lasted there for a while. Then my dad at the time, uh, unfortunately he passed away last July, but uh, yeah, my, my dad at the, at the time, he didn't really like the idea of me becoming a chef. He didn't think it was a, much of a future in it. And so I was working all evenings, Tuesday through Saturday and all the holidays, right? You're there for Christmas. You're all celebrations, right? People are coming to the hotel. You got to, you got to work. And so his best friend was the general general manager of a trucking company, multi-million dollar trucking company, and they needed an accountant. And he says, go talk to him. Go talk to Jerry. Go talk to Jerry. I said, dad, you know what? I, I, I want to do this. Like, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. I said, oh, God, I'll go talk to him. And so they, uh, yeah. <laughs> And so they offered me a position with my own office and salary, and I could work Monday to Friday. I had holidays off, and uh, and I took it. I took the position. And uh, how did that feel? At first, it was great. I thought, you know what, I'm just sort of basking in the the normal life as people have it, where you just work Monday to Friday, office hours. I'm in an office, you know, and and uh, it, it was really good. And sell about a year or so afterwards, I realized that I gave up on my dream. Mm-hmm. And I, here I am back where I didn't want to be because of the enticement of, you know, a salary and cushy office and, you know, Monday to Friday. And I gave up on my dream. And I was How long had you been at the Sheraton and or uh, and Earl's? What was the combined time that you had? Uh, let's see here. Uh, I guess two years at Earl's and two years at the Sheraton. So you were in, you were into it. You'd go dedicated for years. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I was going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
at that point, you know, when I realized that, I thought, you know what, I got to start. And I just thought about it for a while. Like when I say a while, I mean like a couple of years, right? Just really wanted, didn't know what to do. Didn't know how I was going to make my next, next move. This was paying the bills. I was in there. And uh, so one day I sent a, a, an email to um, Karen McSherry. She's the only sort of chef I knew that was on TV that was that I knew of. And uh, prior to that, I should go take a step back. Prior to that, um, when I was working at Sharon Guilford Hotel, is when I first, I believe that's when I first saw Emerald Live, you know, Emerald Legacy, right? Dude, I got to say... <laughs> I, when I was a runner, I used to get really nervous. Okay. Uh, just in my head like crazy. And I used to watch Emerald Live <laughs> to really? calm my nerves <laughs> before my races. So I, when Anthony Bourdain, who again, I admire a lot, obviously keep bringing him up, kind of shat all over him. I was like, oh man, I love Emerald. <laughs> I don't do that. But yeah. anyway, continues. Yeah. Yeah. So here. I'll take a step back here. I'm getting out of myself. And so there was a time when I was working the Sheraton Guilford hotel that I would watch Emerald live. And I knew somehow I knew in my heart, I could do that. I could be as what I call an enter- entertainment chef where I could cook for people, uh, you know, live audience and share what I'm doing, make some jokes and, you know, get that information across to people, making that, that learning environment so entertaining. And I knew I could do it. I didn't know how, didn't know when, didn't know how I was going to make it happen. There was a guy that uh, used to come in and play the piano at the Sheridan Guilford Hotel in the lobby and became um, acquaintances with him. Not really friends. We didn't hang out outside of work. And his, I can't remember his name now, but it'll come to me. It was a, it was a weird name. But he had connections and stuff because he was in the entertainment industry. And we talked about that. And I told him, like, I know I can do this. I don't know how I'm ever going to get the opportunity, but I know I can do this. We've had we had some heart to heart talks about that, but nothing really came of it. I had no idea how I was going to ever break into that sort of thing. Um, And then this came with the whole thing where I was back working as an accountant. And I sent this email to Karen McSherry. I said, you know, uh, I've always seen you on TV, sort of look up to you as a as a chef and. Uh, what's your advice? And she said, well, some of it was kind of generic saying, you know, you have to really make sure you love food because it's hard work and stuff. And you know what? I know all that part. And she says, just find a way to sort of get yourself immersed back in there. If you want to work, you know, at a restaurant in the evenings and get yourself in there, try and make a name for yourself that way in a, in a restaurant. And I appreciated her taking the time to reach out to me, but that wasn't exactly the advice I was looking for. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to invent it myself. I'm going to start a business doing in-home private dinner parties, small groups. I don't want to get into catering and, you know, weddings and all that sort of stuff. I, I've never liked that. I'm just too much like work, right? I stayed away from the catering gigs at the, at the hotel. And just started doing private dinner parties and just try and get the word out there. Created a website, came up with a name. Like I was tossing around business ideas and, and names for my business and myself. And my dad's name was, his nickname was Des from the same last name. And so I thought, you know, Des is, is catchy, you know. And, and when I was at uh, Earl's and stuff, I took on that nickname as well. Because there was another guy named, named Gordon there that he was a real asshole. And I didn't want people to... Th- you know, talk about Gord thinking they're talking about me. So today, <laughs> call me Des. Ever since I started Earl's, I said, call me Des. And so that sort of stuck. And so I just hit me like, hey, I want to be, I'm a chef. 
and my nickname is Des, Chef Des. It's, it's short and sweet to the point. You know exactly what I do for a living is chef. And the name's not difficult. It's not Chef Desarmo, right? Which would be horrible to have as a business name. And I started my own business called chefdes.com and been running that website for 20 years now. And that's, that's wild. Yeah. Ooh. Well, that, that just led into, you know, starting to, so I did that at first and it wasn't, there's not a lot of call for it because it was higher end, you know, and, and it comes with a price and so on and so forth. So I thought, this is a start, but I'm not getting a lot of gigs. I need to think of something else. So I called up the local uh, you know, how you get the continuing education pamphlets for people to, you know, take courses in the evening or weekends or whatever. And, and there wasn't any cooking classes. And they were uh, here in Mission. I was living at the, to- at the time and the local um, high school was was had a like a culinary room there for their home ec. And so I just called up the guy that was running these courses and say, look, you know, you haven't got any cooking classes I'd like to teach a cooking class. Well, what do you know? I said, well, I can do one on this. I can do one on that. Let's give it a shot. And they just were so popular. They kept selling out. He wanted me to book more and book more. And then there's a local winery at the time, Lotusland Vineyards in Aldergrove, yep. which they've moved now, but they were called, originally was called um, uh, Avery Wines or a very fine wine because their last name was Avery. And they hired me to do wine-based cooking there in their little tiny uh, showroom. And so I did that. And everything's just started selling out, started selling out. Then mm. I started, I started writing, uh, you know, I had met my, my current wife at the time. And, you know, uh, I was saying to her, like, there's no food column in our local paper it was the Abbotsford times at, at that point. I worked for the news for a hot second, by the way. Oh yeah. Did you, uh, with Rick Rake? Uh, Rick Rake had just left. And it was uh, Andrew Franklin was the GM and Andy something was the publisher. Okay. I was a, I was just an ad sales guy and there's a whole okay. funny story about that. <laughs> well, it's the funny thing with Rick Ray. Cause I tease him all the time. Cause I went to him first with the, uh, with the Abbotsford news and said, I want to write a food column. And he looked at it and stuff and didn't do anything with it. And then the Abbotsford time I sent to the Abbotsford times and uh, the publisher or the, the editor there called me up and said, well, you know, was it Rod? Rod yes, Thomas? Rod Thompson. Yeah. Thompson, not Tom, Rod Thomas's match. Or met, yeah. Yeah. Rod the, Thompson. The, yeah. So that's, that's a small world Now we are, we are a small towning on our, on our yeah, phone. that's for sure. So anyway, yeah. He, so he called me up and, and he's, and he says, well, like, can you write? And I said, well, I can give you some samples. That's no problem. I said, but here's the problem. I said, you don't have a food column. Like how many of your readers do you think eat food? How many of your readers do you think go home at night and trying to figure out what they're going to have for supper? Probably every single one. So it's just it's so uh, relevant to, to what you want to have in your newspaper. And so he, I sent him some writings and he said, okay, I'll give you a shot. And so I said, I'll, I'll provide you with a new column every two weeks, no charge to you whatsoever. And, but it has to run with my photo, my website, and it has to be called Chef Des on Cooking. Anything else, you can edit it, whatever. And so they went on and, and that column has grown right across the country and into Washington state actually as well, based on that exact same philosophy. I'd pick a newspaper, have a look at it. No food column. I'd call up the editor. How many, how many readers do you think eat food? And yeah, that's a good point. You know, <laughs> this is entrepreneurship 101 here. Yeah. It's so obvious. Right. But again, well, I'm a very literal guy. I'm very matter of fact. Right. Yeah. Well, you, what you're putting, I, you know, dear listeners of the show, like there's a theme here of stepping into action 
for the things that you want creates the things that you want. They don't just come to you. And, and I really like chef does, I really want to tackle the writing specifically. I want to tackle this idea of everyone, you know, there's, there's this high degree of interest in cooking and everybody has to cook. And so I want to get into that. But before we step into that, I want to just take a little bit of a step back. Cause you were, you're, you're talking about, you're sort of, you were trained in the restaurant system. Yeah. Trained at Earl's, tra- trained at the, ho- at the Sheraton. And there's, you know, there's, I, I think that there's a bit of a debate between whether or not somebody needs to go to culinary school versus whether or not they just school of hard knocks, just learn it on the line, learn it, watch, watch, observe. And so I'm curious how, well, A, what's your opinion on that? But, but, but B, how did you take this into your own inspiration of cooking? to say, here's what they did at the Sheraton, but here's what I want to do. And how you found you know, the, the equivalent of your voice inside cooking, because you're going to take this to somebody's house and you're going to previously, and you're going to say, you know, this is how you do this, but who, who's, is it your own inspiration? Are you inspired by others? How are you creating what is chef, a chef des meal at this point? Only four years into actually having been a chef. Well, yeah, true. Um, Four years prior to becoming a chef. So after that time at Earl's and the Sheraton is when I had enough hours to challenge the exam. So I'm going to go back to the first part of your question about culinary school or hard knocks. And mine was all hard knocks. But at the time for the Red Seal chef um, exam, you could challenge it as long as you had 8,000 registered kitchen hours, right? Um, which is like five years full time. It's like becoming a doctor almost, right? I don't know. I'm just kidding. I don't know how long doctors train for or whatever, but it's intense. And I think, you know what? I'm more of a hard knocks sort of guy than, than school. And, and at the same point right now, I mean, as I'm an entrepreneur and I'm always trying to diversify, thinking of this and that, so many times just for fun, I've, I've looked through in the past, you know, ads online for, for different jobs or whatever. And I just get so... Uh, cheesed about the ones that say, you know, must have a university degree in this or that. And I'm telling you, with the amount I know with not only just food, but work ethic and inspiring people and stuff, I could see a position and say, man, I'm the perfect guy for that, but I'm not even going to bother because they want this degree. And it's just a piece of paper. It really is. What's in that person? What's that personality that's coming forward that they need in their company to move them forward? That's what's going to make the difference. Not a piece of paper, not the schooling. I'm not saying that that's not worth anything. But I think more so is the person, the individual, because anybody can go to school, anybody can study, anybody can learn all these concepts and, and stuff like that, which I think is great. I'm not saying it's worthless, but I think you need to have the total package to make something happen in a business. And so bringing that into the culinary world, I was able to challenge the exam and I passed it. And I really think, you know, what's the difference between how I did it and going to culinary school? Well, culinary school, you're working under a chef, he's training you, or maybe it's a multiple chefs as you move forward and they're training you. But the same thing, I was working through Earl's, uh, working through Sheraton Guilford Hotel under different chefs. They were always learning from everybody. What's the difference? There's no difference, really. It's just it's that sort of glamour, the romantic side of a culinary school, you know, and you have this image of your mind of you getting up in the morning and you're packing your stuff and you're, you're trudging off to school and you're doing all this stuff. And it's really no different. You're just going to work instead of going to school. So if you got the chops, you got the chops. However you learned it, it doesn't really matter. Right. And I think that's more important than anything. 
And the but second then, part was, yeah, how, how did you then take what you learned in the, in, in the School of Hard Knocks on the line and take it into your own expression of food? Well, luckily for me and the easier way of doing it in the long run was just sort of letting that blossom on its own by not feeling pressured. So it wasn't like, okay, here I was working as accountant. I want to start my own business. So I'm quitting tomorrow. I'm going to open up a restaurant. I wasn't thrown into it like that. So I could really just sort of grow slowly and build and try and find uh, what I want to do. And I just, I think slowly over time, uh, I gravitated a little bit towards Italian and, and Greek cuisine, just because I love the flavors I always have. And I'm a big pasta guy and I love pizza and stuff like that. But I went into more of a well-rounded dabble in everything sort of thing. And what sort of came out in the end was something it was not consciously done, but subconsciously, I guess I really wanted to be that entertainment chef. And that's was really still in the back of my head ever since seeing Emerald that this is what I want to do. So I didn't really focus on a certain area saying I'm going to stick to this. It's just I dabbled in everything and anything that I could teach somebody, anything that was, you know, tactile or there was a lesson to be shared with, with regular folk. That's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Right. So it just slowly just grew over time and, and uh, I just lost him over time and, and just, you know, that, which brings me into uh, the next part of it. Everything was starting to, to go. Okay. So all my classes that I was doing, they were selling out. Everywhere I went, uh, I, had I was teaching at like two or three or four different places, still have my full-time accounting job, doing my column, uh, having the odd dinner party, and remarried at the time now. And we had, we had one, one child. I'm trying to think of my, <laughs> where these years. Yeah. So Noah, my son, was, he's now 16. He was born in 2006. And by 2008, I was just so busy. And my wife is like, look, you know, you're going to have to make a decision here because we can't continue going like this. I mean, I barely ever see you. You're working full time as an accountant every single day. And then your evenings and weekends, you're doing classes, you're doing dinner parties and stuff. There's got to be a change. There's got to be a little give and take. And so I thought, you know what? You're right. I'm going to quit my accounting job. And she panicked. She's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I meant the other way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, well, she didn't really panic. She has been my biggest supporter. She has been there with me, supporting me. And, and I think that's so important to have a partner that believes in you, believes in your ability, um, sees that spark in you and thinks that if anybody can do it, this guy can do it. So she was scared and she didn't really share that with me at the time. She tells me now, but at the time she was a bit scared. Cause I was leaving my secure, you know, weekly or sorry, uh, a two week paycheck every single time coming in to, you know, if I didn't work, then I don't get any money. But, and I told her, I said, you know what, this is what I need to do. This is what I've always wanted to do. I'm, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to jump in. And I heard later down the road and it really, really hit me down the road after I already made the jump, but I was listening to this uh, lady on the radio and she opened up her and her husband were, big time business people in Vancouver, and they just stopped what they were doing. They moved to Saskatchewan, they bought a, a church, and they renovated it into this cafe and art sort of place. And on, uh, I believe this is how the story goes, but on their wall, they have this mural or something that says, if you jump, the net will appear Yeah. in order to inspire people. That was sort of their inspiration that made them do that because they wanted to just do what they wanted to do but they were giving up a lot to do it, but they just knew that they were going to be successful. 
And that's exactly what I did. I jumped and the, the net appeared because, and I'm not saying, oh, I'm, I'm so lucky mm-hmm. that the net appeared. I've worked damn hard to make sure that net caught me. And when you are pursuing something that you love, here's what I think the big difference is. Everybody is, I wouldn't say everybody, there's a lot of people in love with being an entrepreneur. I want to own my own business. You know, the glamorous part of that, of just and telling people that I own my own business. I'm self-employed. Unless you're pursuing something that you truly love, and that takes some soul searching, you are, I'm not going to say you're not going to be successful, but you're going to be more successful at it if you truly love it, because you don't mind spending every waking hour thinking about your business, how to grow your business, how to move it to the next level, because you're in love with what you do. Absolutely. So absolutely. And and then it's, it goes back to, you know, it's, it's the work that you're passionate about, not the result of your work. And, and I love what you said about the net. I I've often thought about that. And, and, and I've, over the, over time, I've changed how I've thought about it because originally I thought the net was a certain thing. The net was like, if I jumped, the net would appear, but the net would appear exactly as I wanted it to. And as I've gone through my life and you know your life sounds very similar we never really know more than you know as the road unfolds only a few bricks in front of us and i always say to people when you land in that net it may not be exactly what you need or what you wanted or thought it would be but it's exactly what you need and you have to land with that openness you took the accounting job the accounting job allowed you to finance all the different side hustles that then allowed you to turn it into the main hustle. And those little zigs and zags, like, you know, we, we, again, this goes back to the entitlement thing when we're myopic and like, we need X, we kind of put our life in this, this lane that it's it's not a straight line. It can't be contained. We have to let it, we have to give it, you know, we have to be curious. I guess that's what I'm going for. Curious about what it can become when we take those jumps. And often it is exactly what we want. Yeah. You know, that, that, but often, more often, it's exactly what we need. And man, I really admire your story. I really do. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. You know, I can relate on obviously many levels. And, uh, you know, I'm curious if we, if we want to take a little bit of a die, not a digression, but a, a, a down a different road here back to the, or, or to the cooking at home and you're cooking for people. And I know this inspiration just from my mom, because you made her, I think like a, a Greek chicken. Yeah. Uh, that, and that was like one of your specialities and it was like the most moist Greek chicken I've ever had. And so she would like then make it every time we came over for like <laughs> three years, right? Yeah. I'm not exaggerating this at all. And so I, uh, I'm curious, how do people make better food at home? And I have a follow-up question that has to do with ingredients, but maybe we can just start with that simple thing to, to that where they, whether you're hosting somebody, whether you're just cooking for your family, how do people make better food at home? At first I was going to say, you got to have sort of a curiosity about how can I make better food? But it, it, I think it goes deeper than that and more automatic than that because everybody cooks to a certain degree, every single home. And again, I'm a very matter of fact person and I just break things out very literal and everybody has a kitchen, no matter where you live, no matter how big or small your house is, you have a kitchen. And 
everybody has to eat food to stay alive. And I always tell people, you can hear me telling people to this day, actually just last night in my Zoom cooking class I was doing, I was telling people there's only two reasons why we eat food. One is to stay alive and one's for enjoyment. That's it. There's no other reason to eat food. So, and everybody at some point in their lives entertains, whether it's just inviting your friend over for lunch or having couples over for a dinner party or family or whatever, everybody does it. So, to, to better yourself at something, it just takes that, first of all, that realization that cooking is not going away and just doing it. And one, a good way of describing it is if, if you were to, well, first of all, I want to say everybody has taste buds. So even if you have no desire to be a culinary expertise, no desire to be a chef, maybe you even hate cooking, you can taste something still. And say to, to say to yourself, wow, that is just amazing. I, I love that. Like I've been in heaven here eating that right now. We all have that taste buds. We all do. And we can appreciate food. So if, if you were to take somebody and let's say instead of you replace a kitchen and you replace eating in order to stay alive, in order to stay alive, you had to paint. Okay. You had like with canvas, not paint the walls, but with canvas. So you have your brushes and your palettes and all these colors and and you had to paint in order to stay alive. Instead of eating three times a day, you had to paint three times a day. Otherwise, you're going to die. Okay, this is just how we were made as human beings. If you had to paint anyway, would you not make an, a, a conscious effort to get better at it? I, I mean, I got to do it anyway. I might as well create something great I can hang on the wall, mm-hmm. other than just put, you know putting some paint on a, on canvas in order for me to stay alive. You would, I, and I think that would go for almost everybody. You would make an effort to make some art you would want to display. Same thing with food, right? So many people I've heard where I hate cooking or, you know, they just fall back on ordering in a pizza or getting, I mean, now with skip the dishes and, (laughs) and all this stuff and Uber eats and man, I mean, fast food is just a lot more popular than it should be because it's not really that difficult to cook. And if people just looked at it in a different way, like I got to eat anyway. Uh, there's a kitchen right there in my home. So instead of a kitchen, that scenario, everybody had an art studio and everybody ever since you're born. Okay. Put the, put the paintbrush in his hand. That'll make some art. Okay. He can, he can live for another day because he painted, right? Get in the kitchen, create something that you're proud of, that you want to display to your family or friends, or even just to yourself, right? Even when there was times when I was single and I would make myself an incredible meal. I would light a candle at the table. I'd pour myself a glass of wine and just really enjoy what I created for myself. And it's mm-hmm. not saying that in a selfish way. It's just saying that, you know, it's there and appreciate that and just really dive into it. Why not? You got and, nothing to lose. Uh, I, I hear you. And I think that that's so important. And I think that I really, I, I really find it interesting what you said about, even if you're just cooking for yourself. So let's get to that in a second, because if we look at, I have found with, with people I coach with people I know in my life, cooking has fallen into the burden category. Even if they like cooking, it often falls into the burden category. And so you're seeing, we we all work, well, most of us work from home now, or many, many of us work from home now, I should say. And that theoretically should create more time and space because you've lost your commute, you know, that's two hours a day for some people, et cetera, et cetera, to dedicate some of that time to food preparation. And to your point, there's nothing more meaningful in many ways than 
preparing a good meal because the food that we put in our body is everything. It's not just taste buds. When we put good food into our body with good ingredients, we function better. Right. And I find it so sad that in our, from what, from my point of view in our culture, the preparation of food has become, you know, a must do. Whereas in many other cultures, cultures that we appreciate so much to visit during the summer, summers in Italy, summers in Greece, summers in France, even, even in Asia, where there's a street food culture, where it's faster in nature, there's still an unbelievable preparation of in the mornings, it's the markets where they get the fresh basil and the fresh mint and, and they select their meat and all the ingredients go into this food very thoughtfully, whether it's made quickly or whether it's made slowly. Right. And we appreciate that so much, but we don't often bring it to our homes. And I think it's the most important thing, which leads to the second part that you, you said about there, I have found increasingly over the years, because when I was a runner, Des, like I ate bland, like my <laughs> well, mom, one, my mom couldn't cook and two, until she took your class yeah. and then she could cook one thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> or two things. <laughs> yeah. But I, I hadn't had anything. And, you know, when my, then I met my wife and we started traveling and, and all of a sudden it was like my world changed from black and white to technicolor. And no matter how focused I've been on fitness my whole life, if you, you know, if you know me, you know, that's important. There is no level of wine, fat, salt, flavor, whatever that I will sacrifice because I find it almost spiritual. I find it like uplifting to have a good meal to, especially even on your own and especially with friends. And there's almost something transcendent where when you have good food and you have good wine, people loosen up. And obviously wine loosens you up. I get that, but it's different. There's an energetic change when you talk about the candle, when you talk about the wine, when you talk about the food, when you talk about having prepared that food to create this environment where we become ourselves again after a day of being, you know, wound up. And I wish that was something we did more than one night a week. You know, if we did, if we do it at all and, I don't know if there's a question in there, mate, but there's a, that was me uh, rambling on uh, just because I, I just think it was so cool that you did it on your own. And thank you. Is, yeah. is that something that you teach? Do you teach the ambiance creation, the wine pairing? Do you do bring all of the elements when you do classes and performances? I try and focus more on the on the passion of it and trying to share the the point of being proud of what you're doing and just get in the kitchen. Showing people is not really that difficult. Here's the, the biggest obstacle with people is they get these images in their head, right? And they let their thoughts take over their actions. So maybe, you know, they saw a cooking show or they went to a, a live event or a class or whatever, and they got inspired. And they think, you know what, that guy's right. I'm going to do this more often. And then, you know, Monday comes around and tonight we're going to cook from scratch. Yeah. You know, Monday is the Monday from hell at work and you get home late. Oh, well, I just can order pizza tonight. Maybe we'll we'll do it tomorrow. Right. And then tomorrow comes, it's Tuesday. Oh, well, you know, and they start 
uh, rationalize in their head. I'm going to have to take out a pot and a cutting board and a knife and then we'll have all the cleanup. And if you just stop rationalizing it, if you just get in the kitchen and cook, you'd realize you can have something together really quickly. It's not that much effort. It really isn't. It's our thoughts are our worst enemies, right? And they get in the way. And I, and I, so many ways I want to take your your comments here, Joel, and go and run in so many different directions because a million things are coming to my head. Run, run. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I do Big Green Egg demos, right? So I talk with people with Big Green Egg and stuff like that. And I met people from uh, South America once, this, this beautiful couple of girls, and they were chatting with me. And they were saying, you know, what's with it? And people in North America and all their bloody gas grills, everybody has a propane or natural gas barbecue. In South America, they would never dream of cooking their food over natural gas or propane. You go to India, you go to Africa. It's the same thing. It's lump charcoal, carbonized wood. Like according to archaeological digs, we've been making this fuel for the purpose of cooking as human beings for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. What's with it with the gas grills? And I think this is a great analogy to get into because we are so infatuated with having having the convenience of everything. This is why fast food is exploding everywhere, especially in North America, I think, more than anywhere else. I mean, it's everywhere, but I think more here than anywhere else because we are so wound up with having the instant gratification, wound up with having, you know, convenience. We're so busy. You got to run off here, do this, do this, do this, you know. Uh, and so, food, unfortunately, and food preparation has really fallen into that mix. And I've talked to so many people that don't own a big green egg or whatever kind of charcoal grill. It doesn't have to be a big green egg. And they rely on the the efficiency or the quick starting of a gas grill. I just hit that electric start, put on the burner, put a steak on there, shut up, I'm done. You're not looking at the cleanup that you have to do and put a plastic bag in your hand to scrape out all the accumulated animal fats below that are collecting the barrel of that. You're not doing the maintenance required in order to own that piece of equipment. But more importantly, you're not enjoying the food flavor because it's just not there. I tell people the time you could buy $199 special uh, barbecue at the local uh, grocery store, or you could buy a 25,000 mince massive barbecue that still has propane or natural gas, one's going to have a higher grade stainless steel. It's going to have all the bells, bells and whistles. Maybe it has a little uh, uh, nightlight so you can barbecue at night and it has a rotisserie, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the food is going to taste the same. The fuel is exactly the same. You're not enhancing the flavor at all, right? And that true enjoyment from barbecue comes from that carbonized wood. So are you familiar, Des, with, uh, with uh, Francis Melman? No, the name sounds familiar, but I can't. Okay, so Francis Melman is is probably the most famous Argentinian chef. Okay. When you have a second, you and everybody, check out his Chef's Tables episode. I will. And he is famous for cooking with the elements. He's also famous for he's a he's he has a incredible life philosophies. I think one of his most recent books is is Seven Fires. And he has an island in Patagonia and he cooks everything. Argentinian style, which is either awesome. heated, heated, was it a, uh, not a girdle? It's a, a, it's not a, it's like a flat metal service cast iron, but it's not a pan. So I don't know what that is, but they also do the asados, which is the open flame on the charcoal cooking, generally just meat <laughs> with the asado. But I was curious because he, he talks about in that book ex- exactly what you're talking about, where every element of the fire, 
a real fire from the flame to the charcoal, to the ash, cook and flavor your food differently. And you're, you're hitting on this now. And I'm, and I'm curious, so what is it that is this, the, the jumping off point for someone you've now set them up to say that, you know, the barbecue is, is not going to give you what charcoal gives you. So how do they step into this other type of element of, I get elements, fire cooking. How do they do that? How do you advise someone newbie barbecue king esque person <laughs> step into, into just changing it up a little bit? Well, I didn't want this podcast to become a, an ad for Big Green Egg. It's not my intention, just to your, your listeners, okay? But oh, it's okay. Um, here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay? So prior to 10 years ago, so this December, it was 10 years ago when I got my first Big Green Egg. So before that, and man, I was, I was cooking on a gas grill, you know, propane, just like everybody else, right? So I'm not going to say that, hey, I've known from the beginning. I've always, I, I haven't, okay? So and I heard about Big Green Egg and I just had never prior to then ever thought about getting one. I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to get an egg. And it was uh, a year and a half after that, that Big Green Egg Canada found out how excited I was about my egg. And they said, you know what, we're looking for a, a rep for Western Canada. I want you to come work for us. And I thought, you bet. That's the best product in the world. I, I'm definitely going to do that. And here's the thing. I'm a very honest guy. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, building my business, my chef des name, and there's no way I'm going to jeopardize the years of me building my brand to represent a product just because the company's going to pay me to do so. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that now. I'm not going to do that in the future, as far as I can see. Anyway, and so when they approached me, I said, you know, this makes sense because my food has never tasted better. It is an amazing product. It's something that anybody can jump into. So going to your question there, Big Green Egg has made this very simple. They are actually, they've been in business since 1974. So they're sold in like 50 countries worldwide. So anybody around the world can buy a Big Green Egg. And they've made it so simple to, because a lot of times when I talk to people at charcoal and I'm working a sales floor at a store or whatever, uh, helping them out, one of my retailers, and they're looking at a gas grill and I just try and put that spark in their, in their brain saying, hey, you ever think about charcoal? And they give me the eye roll. Oh, charcoal. That thing's going to take forever. No, no, actually it's not. It's you're up and running at 400 degrees in 15 or 20 minutes. So everything that people say about charcoal is actually gone with a big green egg. You can control the temperature. You can have it low and slow and, you know, do hot smoking at 225. You can crank this thing up to over a thousand degrees, everything in between breads, biscuits, pies, pizza, anything you want to do. So and again, I'm not trying to sound like a commercial, but they have really uh, encapsulated the perfect uh, opportunity for anybody to get involved in not only barbecue, but creating great flavor in their food. Anybody can do this. My, my son, Noah, who's 16, he started cooking on an egg when he was 10. I gave him my medium sized one. And he's been cooking on it now for six years and he's 16 years old. If a 10 year old can operate this thing, <laughs> anybody can do this. It really can. Is Did they get famous for the brisket? Is that, I, I think my, my friend has a big green egg and I think, is it traditionally a brisket smoker or sort of was put in that category as its point of entry into the market? Uh, no, not point of entry. I don't think. No, back when when Ed Fisher started the company. So Ed Fisher is still alive to this day, and he started in 1974. He was the U.S. serviceman, and he went to the Orient, and he marveled at this chicken that was served in a Kamado style clay cooker. So it's a Kamado style, been around for thousands of years in the Orient. But he 
thought we didn't have anything like this in the U.S. And he came back and he created Big Green Egg, but he used to stand outside his store and, and make like just chicken wings and serve them to people. And like, wow, like this tastes so good, right? And one big thing about ceramic, well, there's many good things about going with ceramic is because uh, ceramic absorbs heat energy. It saves you a lot of money in fuel because it just captures the heat energy that's in there and stores it for you and radiates back to the food. So you burn less fuel, but also it's a very uh, moist environment as well. You have a lot more moisture in that rather than just a uh, steel box with fire, which is a very dry environment. So it's completely different than your results, but ease of use is top notch. Can we take a, again, just a, not a diversion, but I want to just this, this idea of how do people cook better at You want home. to move away from the big green egg commercial? No, no, no. I, I wanted, <laughs> I want a big green egg. Yeah. Again, I apologize. <laughs> I just get excited. Where's the, I, my, where's the my discount? Heart is there, right? yeah. <laughs> is there, we got to put in chef, uh, chef dead pro does promo code or what do we get a, yeah. <laughs> 20%. I'll, I'll show you something really quick before we move on. I, I don't know if you can see that because it's blurred. My, my screen is blurred, but um, it, it is blurred. It looks like a, uh, uh, you, you can't. Oh, see I it. see it. You have a big, you have a big green egg tattoo. I do. That's pre or post on my arm. <laughs> pre or post when you started working for them. Well, as I was starting work for, it was a funny little quick, funny story. All of us reps from Canada went down to the mothership, which is Atlanta, Georgia, their head office, the world headquarters, the ships to all these countries worldwide. And outside our hotel, we were staying in it. We we're there for sales training and see the museum and stuff like that. There was a tattoo shop. So I said to the guys, we all say we love our eggs. Who's going to prove it? Who's going to get the logo? And I was the only one that got the old logo. Oh. Other people got like a, a little dome with some flames coming from it, but didn't say actual big green egg. And they're like, wow, you're a lifer. I said, look, man, I said, even if I was to quit tomorrow, I'm still have my egg. I'm going to have it the rest of my life because it's a lifetime warranty. It feeds my family. It's like part of my family. I got three eggs, actually. <laughs> so it's uh, it's no sweat to put that tattoo on my arm whatsoever. Dude, if you got the tattoo, <laughs> like you are allowed to talk about it all you want. Like, all right. Sounds is, good. That is next level uh, passion. I, uh, what, what would I get a tattoo of? I mean, I get a tattoo of an Argentinian asado with a giant piece of steak and some blood sausage cooking on it. I might get that just across my whole back. There you go. All right. I'm going to tell your wife that. <laughs> well, when you see, when we have, um, I, I made a film about traveling the world with children and, and there's a whole asado scene in Argentina in that film. So you'll, uh, I'll send it to you. Well, when it comes out, hopefully I won't even have to, you'll, you'll, you'll know, but yeah. that's why I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat versed on the subject of asados, but back to ingredients, because this is, this is something that's near and dear to my heart and I'm not super educated on it so that I may spread some um, good old fashioned disinformation and misinformation as I proceed here you can correct me you know where suited but one of the things that you you hear is that you know Europe has much higher quality ingredient standards uh, specifically you know for bread etc than we do or dairy uh, than we do in North America I don't know if that's true that's the first thing people can check out. What I do know is that when I eat certain breads here, I bloat. And when I eat certain breads there, I don't. Pasta's included. So take that for what you will. But the point being, I, I was listening to, or sorry, the question is coming. I was listening to a podcast where it was explained that there's no real equivalent of the FDA. So the Food and Drug Association or whatever administration that approves a drug safe-ish before it comes out. 
you know, we all, we've all seen the commercials after it's released with 500 side effects and it's still released. So <laughs> take that for what you will, but there's no equivalent of it in the food industry. Food industry acts retroactively on unsafe ingredients, where if something comes out and then it's found to be unsafe, it's then taken off the market. I don't know how true that is or isn't heard it on a podcast. So let's just assume it's somewhat true. What we do all know is that when we go to a grocery store, a lot of things that we buy are shit ingredients. They have shit ingredients in them. Things like the brand name real fruit is not real fruit. It's a brand name, right? Natural flavors is a brand name. It is not natural flavors. And this test tube way of producing the ingredients for shelf preservation and um, and all that I understand. So the question is, because we're we're not so set up outside of major cities to go shop for our ingredients day of, pop down to the local market. Maybe you can. It's not it's not as easy as it is in, in some places. How does somebody dial in the ingredients to ensure that they're not only getting the best ingredients? from a health perspective, but from a flavor perspective as well. Is, is this a question you can answer, Chef? Or? Well, I'll try my best. Uh, I think, you know, uh, being in food, a lot of people ask me about trends, right? And what are, what are the trends mm-hmm. happening? And, and trends happen all the time and they change and you can't even predict some trends. Mm-hmm. You know, you have no idea. And uh, I would say a couple of the one trend is not, I wouldn't even say it's a trend because it's been around for just so long is people practicing more conscious eating. So sustainability, you know, ethical choices, so on and so forth. And that's been around for a long time. And I, I think it's growing, but here's the sort of speed bump in the whole thing. And, and what you're talking about as well is now we're faced with, at least here in the world, incredible inflation, like the highest in 40 years, right? 40 years, yeah. And, you know, uh, in all areas, like gas prices, food prices, anything you try and do in your life, mortgage rates are through the roof. So anybody that has to renew right now, I, I feel for you because I'm locked in for the next 40, four more years at a really low rate. So I, I didn't want to think about the next four years, like four years from now, right? But it's, it's harder to do that. It's harder to stay focused if that's what you want to do on sustainability and ethical choices, if the prices for those premium products are through the roof, how can you do that when all food is through the roof and those ones even more so? So I think it's a, it's a very difficult time to try and analyze that and how to go about doing that unless you're you know a multimillionaire and you have no cause for concern about what you're spending on your food budget, which I don't think is the norm for most people right now. But really get paying a part, playing a part is your local uh, thing is I think how you can overcome that. So you shop locally, shop, shop at your local farm markets, which are, you know, housed by local farms, places locally that really only bring in products from local suppliers. And you're sort of eliminating the middleman to a certain degree. They don't, there's no shipping involved. You're not going across the country. You get fresher ingredients. Hopefully by that being done, they're, they're more in touch with, you know, more organic uh, ways of, of growing your vegetables and stuff like that. And just people just doing their homework, doing their investigation, you know, contact your local butcher and, and say, you know, where do you get your meat from? And why do you get it there? What's so important about your products that you sell? What do you stand for? And 
choosing products. And here's the thing I was going to say, if you can afford to do so, because uh, don't get me wrong, you can go to a butcher, you can go to a specialty market or whatever. They're trying to survive just like everybody else. And they have to have a price that is fair, but also they have to run their business. And if they can't turn a profit by having a certain percentage made in margin, they're not going to be in business anymore. So it's a lot harder for my local farm market. I won't put out any brand names, but to be to grow in these times of inflation, because I can go to my run-of-the-mill chain grocery store right now, and I can buy a pack of pork chops that is going to cost me a fraction of the price as the local butcher farm market that I'm thinking of. But the taste is going to be so much better. So the taste is better. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to think about there. I th- I think your point is really fair. And I'm disgusted by our food industry in general, like by the fact that unhealthy food is so much more affordable than healthy food. So prepackaged and, and processed. Yeah, yeah. repackaged and processed food when we know that obesity and, and most of the diseases that are also pandemics all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Come from food. Like it, it comes from food. And, and so I guess maybe I'm, I'm, I'm asking and I'm inferring where you're going. I could be wrong. I think about there's this there's award-winning pizza. It's a Michelin star winning pizzeria in Naples. No, it was somewhere in Italy. It's four ingredients. Okay. Buffalo, it's a it's a margarita pizza. Okay. The, the tomatoes come from a tomato farm. The cheese, the buffalo mozzarella comes from a buffalo mozzarella place. Bread comes from a local baker. It's four ingredients. Yeah. If you can't buy all the best local foods. The the foods with the least amount of ingredients beside their name are probably the best for your household. A pork chop is a pork chop. Whether that pig was raised and slaughtered humanely is, is another factor, but a pork chop is still a pork chop. The nutritional value is still the same. A banana is still a banana, whether or not it was grown organically. And is that is that fair to just to look at it and say, well, how can I then keep some of the complexity out of the ingredients so that I'm minimizing or am I just bullshitting here? <laughs> no, I, I understand where you're going. And he, here's what I want to say. I want to make sure that, you know, your listeners and, and you yourself, Joel, are not thinking I'm, I'm getting on the bandwagon of, you know, picketing our local big chain grocery stores. And, and not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, I think that we... Every community needs to have a good mix of those specialty market and butchers that cater to those people that really want to make those ethical choices, the sustainable choices, so on and so forth. But I actually, at the same time, applaud our big chain grocery stores for doing such, they, they, they do such huge business. Like we can't even imagine the, the amount of business that they generate. And because of that, they have buying power and they can bring in produce. I mean, sure, they bring in all this crap stuff too. And you go down the process, you know, snack food aisle and you look at the cheese balls and you look at all the stuff and you look at the ingredient list and they baffle your mind. But they all are also bringing in fresh produce. They're bringing in meats. They're bringing in stuff like that at prices where people can afford. So it, it takes that person that may be struggling, that struggling with their budget and they want to learn how to cook or they want to cook something from scratch, they have the ability to do so because they can look at the flyer, see what's on sale in the produce section. They can get produce very, very inexpensive and meat inexpensive. Is it the same quality? Probably not. But 
as you say, a pork chop is a pork chop. In their mind, they can buy a pork chop and they can cook from scratch at home, which also saved them in the, in the fact that they don't have to rely on restaurants as much or fast food or any of that stuff. You know, it's, it's so they play a huge part in our society. And me with what I'm focusing a lot on now are my Zoom cooking classes. And I, I get people to take advantage of that. You know, buy your ingredients. It's not going to cost you a lot of money unless you want it to cost you a lot of money. And if you can afford it, great. And buy those ingredients. Let me tell you what to do with those ingredients. And let me let me sort of instill a different mindset in you at the same time, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's There's such a romantic idea of the local artisan for everything. And I, when we were living in this small town in Argentina called Biele Masse, you know, it's like a one street town of <laughs> 2000 people tops, oh, right? Yeah. I, it was actually inverted there. So everyone has their local butcher. So there are, you know, two to three butchers in the, in the area. And you have the guy that you've used forever. I'm the gal, right? It's like, you know, when you're running an asado, it's, you're going to a certain person who's, you know, got the, their meat. And then there's the, the bakery. And then there's the cheese shop. And you go to each different shop it's actually as it's actually the same price or a, a hair cheaper, at least in that experience, than it was to go to the local big box grocery store, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes away kind of thing. Right. And we just, we just loved that experience where, I mean, you're on, again, you're, you're sort of on vacation. So it was working, but remotely. And we just walk in the evening to go to the bakery and go to the butcher shop and get some sausage and some bread or some fresh pasta made that day. Yeah. And when things are made fresh, it's, oh my gosh, is there's nothing compares to it. No, but it's also the process and the ingredients they use. So for example, I can go into my big box grocery store today, right now, and I can buy a whole one pound French loaf for 95 cents. And, and, and folks in the, in the U S listening to this, that's 95 cents Canadian. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's it's pennies. So that's negative they're, US they're, dollars. That's, that's they, <laughs> they're paying you to take it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, but I can go to any bakery, local or in the community surrounding me. Nowhere could I buy a one-pound French loaf for ninety-five cents. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. And that French loaf at that big box store was baked off this morning. Mm -hmm. It was baked fresh. But there's something about the process, the ingredients, the top quality flours and the love they put into it. You know, maybe it's their, their cooking vessel. Maybe they have like a Forno style, you know, fire oven mm -hmm. that they cook all the bread in. It gives us that incredible flavor, you know, but you're, you're going to pay for it in the end. So if you can afford to do that, fantastic. But it goes beyond just it being fresh. It really does. You're, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, what am I? I'm like the equivalent of a, uh, a pseudo intellectual when it comes to food. So just disregard everything I, I say. But, <laughs> That's okay. You know, I get it though. I get it. I understand. But I, there's uh, always uh there's always a flip side to everything, right? So no, it's it's a fair point. It's a fair point. You know, and maybe it wasn't even the bread. I remember I had never had fresh pasta. I had never had pasta made that day, then cooked, you right. know, and that was that was next level, but let's, let's switch. Cause I want to move. I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to switch to, there's a few questions. I, I'd like to ask, I want to get into your creative process a little bit because you've written five books, uh, five cookbooks, plus another book, plus you write columns, plus you do TV segments. Uh, you're very busy. 
Yeah. And I know that when, when people are busy, it, it's creativity is sometimes more challenging uh, it, and other times people thrive in that environment. But I want to know, you know, a little bit about the process of how you tackle writing your first and cookbook and then your other cookbooks and, and more in general, how you structure your creativity and, and, you know, your routine as you go through any day in your life. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to my first book. So it was just a, a natural, in my mind, a natural pro- progression to do because I was teaching all these classes and people were collecting the recipes. And uh, I, I've heard from a very early age that, you know, in order to be successful, you have to stop exchanging your hours for dollars. And that's exactly what I was doing. So a store would hire me as a subcontractor to come in, you know, do a cooking lesson. People would get my recipes. They, you know, love the food and they would be on their way. I'd be on my way. And I would just get paid for my segment that I did. So I knew I had to move on to the next step and create something that would just sell as I was sleeping that I didn't have to dedicate, you know, exchange of my hours for dollars for. So that was naturally for me, a cookbook. I had no idea where to begin. I had no idea how I was going to do it. I had no idea, you know, how it was even come to fruition, but I, I had to do it. I just knew I had to. So I just started getting a collection at the time. And what's made it really easy is now people can self-publish so simply. When I did my first one, I was self-published as well. Prior to that, I was trying to find a publisher and uh, don't even get me started. Like the whole entertainment industry is tainted. It is so tainted. Uh, I shouldn't say in every aspect. And I'm not trying to insult anybody from my perspective. Can I, can I digress a little bit here? Yep. <laughs> so there was this uh, production company. They were looking for, you know, a, the next fresh face on TV, entertainment chef. You know, you're going to host a cooking show. Send us a video what you got. So I, so I did. I won't say who it is. And so they, they called me the same day at home. They called me. Like, you're exactly what we want. You, you make love to the camera. We want you. Like, this is great. But I want you to send me something else. I want, to sh- want you to show me you interacting with people as you're cooking. Can you do something like that in the next couple of weeks? I said, yeah, you bet. I'm actually teaching a class at the university. I'll, I'll film that and I'll edit it down for you and stuff like that. Fantastic. Send it to me. So I did. And uh, that was my evening. Then the whole next evening at the time, I had no idea how to edit anything. Right. So I sat there and I spent the whole evening away from my family because this was important to me. This is sort of at the time, my my dream. I want to be on TV sort of thing. And I spent the whole evening editing this thing down from uh, two hours to 18 minutes. Okay. And I sent it to her and I was sort of on pins and needles. Oh, I wonder when she's going to get back to me and stuff. Very naive. Right. And uh, no word, no word, you know, a week went by, no word, two weeks went by, no word. So I'd like sent her a message. I said, you know, did you get it? Like, did you get the file? Okay. And whatever, no reply. Found her on Facebook, requested friendship. She accepted. Okay. Well, there's a good sign. (laughs) And uh, sent her another message and said, you know, I'm just curious. Like, if you think, if you haven't got time, just say you haven't got time to watch it yet. I'll, I'll be patient. I'm just curious to make sure you got the file. And she came back to me with this long thing, man, I could barely hear you. The camera was quality was terrible. And I told her beginning, like when she asked for this, I'm not an editor. Okay. I'm an entertainer. This is what I do, right? That's your job to be an editor. I didn't say that to her, but so she started complaining about all these technical things about it and stuff like that. I thought, wow, in my mind, you ungrateful so-and-so like, man, I, I, I spent all this time. You wanted me to do this for you. And I warned you that it was not going to be professional. I'm not, I'm, that's not what I do. 
and I wasted all that time for nothing. Mm. So I was like, I was so mad. And then uh, they contacted me to do a, uh, uh, a reality show. I'd be a contestant on a reality cooking thing. And I said, sorry, I'm, I'm way too busy. I haven't got the time for that sort of stuff. I don't really believe in the reality shows, even though it was on Chop Canada uh, one time, but that was later. And then she, she said, look, just do something on your phone. Just send me something. I'll send it in. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to call her on it. I'm going to tell her what I actually think about her coming back to me with all this stuff. And I thought one of two things is going to happen. Either she's going to be a very apologetic and give me another shot, or she's going to, you know, crap on me. And it was, it was the latter of the two. She, uh, I told her exactly how I felt. And she came back to me. We, I was trying to give you an opportunity, all this. And she's like, whatever. Like she just, in my opinion, in the, I wouldn't say all producers, but the producers that I've talked with, uh, they're so far up there. They just think they're the king of the castle and they want me to do their job for them. I'm not here to do your job. Here's the, here's the raw product. And it's like finding a diamond in the rough, sort of be so cliche, but there's the diamond. You got to make it shine, buddy. And mm-hmm. I'm giving you the raw materials here. And I can, I can, I got the chops to do it. If you can't see that. I don't want to do business with you because you're just going to keep expecting me to do your job. I don't want to do your job. Otherwise I just become a producer. Right. So it's tough. How, how I got on this, this. No, no, it's tough. I hear you. I mean, I hear, <laughs> I hear the, as an entrepreneur, as an artist, you put yourself out there, you're vulnerable. You're working on no budget whatsoever. Yeah. And it's, it's rough. I mean, I've dealt with it in many respects in that exact way. And, and, and you, you know, you kind of flip this, flip the script and it's like, well, what's going on in their world? And it's like, well, they got an angry boss yelling at them about ratings and this and that, and what's going to sell and what's going to sell. And, and it, it, it feels, I mean, it's not like poor us, but it also feels like it, it, it there's just not a, a very, and maybe that's for good reason, clear path to finding an entry point in that world. Whether, you know, I was on Dragon's Den. I I was on, you were on Chopped. I was on Dragon's Den. At the end of the day, it was TV. You know, I thought I had a good relationship with the producers. I thought I had a good relation. I thought I made good inroads with a couple of the dragons. They didn't even remember me the next time I bumped into them. Yeah. You know, I asked, you know, I was on the show three times and this isn't a knock on them, but I asked for an introduction for another project I was working on to nothing, you know? So it, it just, it just is what it is. And I, and it just sucks because we wear our emotions on our sleeve as entrepreneurs and we're putting everything into this and, and creators. Absolutely. And there's a real reality to a real, a real, real reality to what it feels like to put yourself out there in general. To, to, to step out into something and say, okay, this is, I did my best. This is who I am. Yeah. And to hear crickets. Yeah. Or to have, you know, and obviously you learn and you keep going. That's part of the game. You have to. But really it's still, it's visceral. Yeah. It is hard. Absolutely. And it's the thing that, I respect so much about those who like yourself, just they, they keep going. They stay in it. They so just it, don't. It, it's really difficult. Something you, you learn o- over time. When I was in school, uh, I noticed that uh, starting in grades prior to grade six, 
I was a good looking boy, you know, good personality, got along with lots of people, had, you know, girlfriends, not really girlfriends in that early age, but, you know, you know, I know, you know, <laughs> you know I mean, right. Anyway, and then grade six, seven, I started changing. I started gaining weight. I was, uh, I mean, I'll say it, I was ugly, right? I was a weird looking kid. And I just started realizing that people are treating me differently. And, and you know, people coming up to me in, in junior high, you're fat and people pushing me down and beating me up. And, you know, I don't like the way you look. So he kicks me in the nuts. Um, like you go through a lot of shit if you just don't fit in. And I got, I got your gay. I got just cause I, you know, whatever I was pretty boy kind of look kind of thing. Like, I, I don't mean that like I was uber handsome. I mean that as in like, you had very, I don't know, blue eyes and whatever, but like kids would in the uh, driving when I was walking home from school, when the bus would go by, this certain group of kids would every day just yell out, you're a fag to me as like they're driving by. So I never got beat up, but you know, they threatened to do it all the time. So I feel, again, I feel you on that. Like, I know what that's, what that's like. Yeah. So it takes, it takes a lot to sort of overcome that. And years ago, it was just like, man, I didn't have any self-confidence. So not at all. So uh, when I met my, my first wife, for example, we were high school sweethearts and uh, I really believed to my heart that I couldn't get anybody else. I was lucky to have her. Mm-hmm. There's no way I can get anybody else. I mean, looking back now, like what a what a stupid way of thinking. You know, all the whole cliches or all the fish in the world or whatever. It didn't matter to me because uh, I was worthless in my mind. I've been through all these years of people telling me that. So that's what I believed. And I, I figured that's all I can get. Whatever, whatever happens, I'm just going to make it work because I'm not, I'm not worthy of anything else, right? So it's taken many years of sort of soul searching and, and, and really overcoming that. And then when you get into a spot like that where people say, you know, what you put out, your best effort, sorry, it's not good enough. Man, it really hurts. But as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you got to find a way to move forward. You just, you just have to, because otherwise you're going to be dead in the water. So, uh, and I remember that probably my first spark, uh, even before Emerald of me doing what I'm doing, as I remember when I was getting married and I had the microphone and I was talking and I was like, this is really cool. Like I'm talking and people are listening to me. This is the first time this has ever happened. And I thought there's something there. There's something about that, that I, I need to think about. I have no idea how that's ever going to happen. Maybe I thought maybe, okay, it's just, just my moment in the sun and then it's going to be gone or whatever. But prior to that, I never had the opportunity to do anything like that. Never would I want to, right? I was sort of like pushed onto the stage. Here's the microphone. Say, say what you're going to say, right? But you have to dig deep. You have to find what's in you and move forward and keep reinventing if that's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're, you're dead in the water. You might as well go back to collecting a paycheck and working for somebody, which <laughs> I'm never going to do that again. Never, never in my whole life. It's, this is what I've been born to do. Absolutely. And, and so I, I know we wanted to, to touch on the, the writing of the first book. And oh, yeah, we sort of I, digress from that. It's all good. We, and I had a couple more questions to, to ask. And um, so why don't we just walk me through your routine? What does what a day in your life look like? How do, you, how do you structure your day? Yeah, it's all over the place. It really is. So as I mentioned, I'm a rep for Big Green Egg. I'm a corporate chef for BC Egg. So I write 
recipes and do videos for them. Um, I focus on my YouTube channel uh, and, and, you know, talking to those uh, said producers and, and stuff like that and, and trying to get on talk shows. And because you don't have a show of your own, they don't want you on the talk show, mm-hmm. no matter what you do, no matter how, how good you're at, what mm-hmm. you do, it doesn't matter. Um, I sort of like, you know what, in rebellion almost to all that, I'm just going to start my own channel. I'm just going to do my own stuff. Mm-hmm. And the people that really see the value in me and latch onto that, they're the ones that are going to make me successful. So mm-hmm. my mind and my days are all over the place. And when the pandemic hit uh, early, well, you know, when I hit right in 2020 in March, April and May, I had no income. So everything was shut down here. I don't know whether your listeners were what, what affected you at the time of the pandemic, stuff like that. But here locally, all the stores were shut down for a period of time. Uh, if you were a retailer, you weren't buying any big green eggs in my area. So I wasn't making any money from that. My All my cooking classes, which were done in person, they were all canceled. I had nothing. So I really had no income for two months. I was like, wow, like, what the heck am I going to do? And so I almost went and became a meat cutter just so I could bring in some money, help pay the bills, whatever feels like I have some value. And somebody told me, well, why don't you do virtual classes online? And so ever since then has been my focus to build that. And, and they went gangbusters and I, you know, fine-tuned it through Zoom. And, and what stemmed from that is having all this recorded material that I can now transform into YouTube videos as well. So it was kind of twofold for me. And why I'm telling you this is because that's a huge part of my, my week as well. So I'm balancing being a rep for Big Green Egg and looking after my territory of all of British Columbia, you know, looking after my relationship with BC Egg and creating great content for them. Also, uh, that creativity side of, okay, what's next for my Zoom classes? Always trying to have six classes to choose from my website. So as each one comes and we do it and it's gone, uh, six more I always want to have there, right? So it's always thinking about what I'm going to do next. What, what can I offer? What are people looking for? How can I touch them in their home to give them that spark to say, you, you know what, you can do this. Uh, and, and one of the things now with the, with the inflation is I really made sure that uh, I'm not going to raise my price. I'm going to keep my price as is because, and it might seem uh, stupid as a business person, but my, my goal, and maybe this is sort of, I don't know, naive to think, but my goal is I just really want to take people's hand and show them the way that cooking is the answer to, you know, you're spending too much money in your food budget, you're spending too much money eating out of restaurants or food is the way to bring people together, you know, cook with your children. You can ask them how their day was as you're cooking, cook with your spouse, turn off the TV, put on some nice music, pour yourself a glass of wine you know, let's come together and let's make something of this. Let's bring the value back in this that a lot of countries see that we don't see here in North America. Let's, I want to help you get there. So, you know, for a measly 20 bucks, you can tune, that's 20 bucks Canadian folks. Like you can tune in. And that's practically free in the US. Yeah, you got it, right? (laughs) With our Canadian dollar the way it is. But I'm there alive with you for an hour and a half. I send you the recipe in advance. I give you a prep list in advance of what we're going to prep together, what you're going to need to have measured out in advance. And not only are you learning, which a lot of people tend to shy away from, oh, well, I don't want to sit there and whatever, but it's entertaining. I make sure it's entertaining. We, we, we do something. If you go to my website, chefdes.com, again, I'm not trying to make this an ad for myself or anything, but there's a great testimonial video on my website about what I do and these people that take my classes 
why they come. And it just says it all more than I could ever say. And I'm so grateful to these, these regulars that I have. And to be honest with you, Joel, I really thought that I would be like beating people off with a stick because it's going to be so popular because there's so many people out there that need help. I, I joined a, a Facebook group about cooking for beginners. And it said right in the uh, qualifications from the admin at the very beginning, you can't do any self-promotion, stuff like that. But there's these people here that are just begging for help. How do I cook an egg? And I'm thinking, oh my God, like I can help this person. So what did <laughs> I do? I started putting my YouTube links and stuff like that. Here, I'm going to help you out. You get, you get I the got boot? banned. <laughs> I got banned. I think oh, they cut me off. I can't even oh. connect to the channel anymore. I've been, I've been, I've been banned from a few, uh, few groups before myself. So it's all good. Sometimes you just got to take a risk, but yeah. I got to, I want to do, I want to do three, three rapid fire questions, so to speak. Okay. All right. Before we close. Okay. So let's see how you can pass if you don't want to answer them. Okay. One of them was how do you cook an egg? What is that? What is the secret <laughs> to eggs in the morning? Again, rapid fire. So you got to just like a real quick. Well, that's a loaded question because what kind of egg are you talking? Fried well, egg, scramble. Scrambled. Okay. Low heat. Low heat. Low heat. There's your, there's your answer. Okay. Because people go high heat. Absolutely incorrect. Look at my YouTube video. <laughs> Secret to cooking a great turkey. Cover it with bacon and mayonnaise. Damn. That's a good secret. <laughs> there it is. Okay. All right. And you can put bacon on old shoe. It would taste good. Let's be God, honest. This man. is, this is honest with cheese for that matter. Yeah. All right. I know you're a whiskey lover. Yeah. What are the, what are your favorite whiskeys that generally people could find? Top one comes to mind for Scotch right now that I'm really enjoying is Auchentosh, Auchentoshan, uh Triple Wood. I've had that. Yeah, it's I've... great. It's complex. It's dark. It's lots going on in that bottle. What's, uh, what is the best spirit that pairs with food? So not wine, not obviously wine or beer, but spirit that pairs uh, with food. Is it whiskey? I... And what is the food that it would pair with? That's a very hard question to answer. <laughs> Man, it, it would have to be a certain dish with everything. With every spirit, it would have to be a certain dish in order for it to work. And you can't just pick one, say, this is the best one. You just can't. I'm always, it's all good. I'm always fascinated by it because, you know, we always think, okay, red wine, these, white wine, these, maybe right. craft right. beer, these, but we don't. The conversation is never, well, what about tequila, whiskey, vodka? How do, well, they I mean vodka, caviar, et cetera. But like, how do people think about pairing spirits with food has been a curiosity. Well, here's the thing that we taught people years ago. So I mentioned briefly that I started teaching at this local winery, Lotusland Vineyards, and it was uh, uh, Avery Wines before that. And what we did or what we set out to do was teach people wine pairings, not by saying this goes with this really well, but giving them recipes that you cook with the wine, the same wine you're going to serve. So my answer to that was, or will be to you, Joel, that cook something that includes that spirit, and then that spirit will go well with it. So for example, one of my books, I have a recipe for pork medallions in a single malt pan sauce. Mm -hmm. So you sear the pork tenderloin medallions, cut them in medallions, sear them in the pan. Then you deglaze with lemon juice. You pour some scotch in there, some really peaty scotch. You set it on fire. You add a little bit of honey to it just to balance it all out. And they're seasoned nice and add a little bit of cream. You boil it down to syrupy. Then you pour that sauce over the medallions. And I'm telling you, if you had a little glass of Laphroaig 
with those tenderloins, man, it's going to go perfect together. I guarantee you. Oh, baby, that sounds delicious. Okay, second last question. All right. Top three or five best food countries that you visited or to visit? Well, I can only give you two. Canada and the U.S. That's all I've been, man. So Okay. So in Canada and the U.S., can you name specific regions and or restaurants that you would recommend to someone then? Uh, yes. Dallas, Texas, uh, Smoke, Smoke Restaurant. I actually have his book here somewhere. I can't remember the name of the guy, but it's the restaurant's called Smoke. And he has a book out. The book's great. The guy's talented. Probably the best brisket I've ever had in my life was in Dallas, Texas at that restaurant. Dallas, Texas smoke. Okay. Best brisket I ever had was in uh, Memphis, but I've never had brisket in Dallas. I've had it in Austin. It was a place called Corky's. Okay. Pork pork brisket though, not how they probably do beef brisket in Dallas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question is just one thing I always ask is, it's a parting words to the audience, just something that you want to share that you think people, you know, can take some value from. Well, that leaves it or, wide open, or it? quote or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't prep you just so you guys know, I didn't prep Chef Des on any of these things. No, so they are truly not, authentically not, from the top of his head. <laughs> well, one of the things in your questionnaire sort of guideline that you sort of gave me a guideline, what we're going to talk about sort of thing. But one of the things that I thought about is, and very few people know this about me. So I'm going to share it publicly for the first time with you is that I almost committed suicide and uh, that's hard for me to talk about, but it was back in, uh, in 95. And when I was bankrupt and I had nothing, I couldn't see how to move forward. I couldn't see it. And so I lived on this, in this bachelor's apartment, like I mentioned to you before, and I was going to throw myself off the balcony, eight floors up from a high rise. And just before I did it, I can't really say it's a voice, but more of a a feeling, and uh, I'm I'm not religious per se. I don't want people to think, oh, this guy's a, you know, a Bible thumper or whatever. I don't want people's opinion about religion and stuff like that. I'm a very spiritual guy. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I found this voice in my head at the time that said, "Just let God. Mm-hmm. You don't have to figure it all out. Just let God." And I didn't jump. And I tell you now that I'm so thankful I never did, because I have so many blessings in my life, and it was just so hard. It was just so hard at the time, but I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose because if I jump, it's over, man. Mm-hmm. And whether you believe whatever happens on the other side, that's totally up to you to think what happens to you if you commit suicide. But I didn't see a way out, but I thought I got nothing to lose, but to keep moving forward, what's the worst going to happen? And so I, I believed in that voice and I walked away from the edge. Jeff, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, you bet. So if that can help somebody out there, then that's the reason why I put myself out here for you. Yeah, just uh, that, that is probably the, the worst thing you could ever do. Where I, I truly, and coming, coming from that, I've really found more of a deeper meaning in myself. We are all, I know it's a cliche to say this, it's almost comical to say it, but we're all here for a reason. But more than that, we're all here to learn we're all here to learn. And what I've grown to learn from that experience after that and through my life, and it's taken a long time to really grasp it, is we're here to love and we're here to forgive. And I think that's why we're here on earth to really learn how to do that. And so many people say it's easy, but you look at those toughest situations when somebody is really 
you know, coming down on you, insulting you, whatever, whatever's happening in your life. And you're feeling really negative towards a person. Imagine trying to love that person and imagine trying to forgive that person. We all have a lot to learn. I think. That's fantastic advice. And I'm, I'm so grateful you're here. And I know many people that are so grateful you're here. Our conversation is because you impacted somebody. That's why we're having a conversation today. And, And so I encourage everybody to find you, find your books. We'll put all your links in in the show notes so they can check out whether it's your YouTube, whether it's your website, whether it's your book links. We'll make sure all of those are available. I appreciate so much that you wear your vulnerability on your sleeve. I think that that's something we all need to do more of. I appreciate so much your stories of staying with it, of being fearless in the face of rejection in terms of handing in your resumes and and reaching out to people that you, you know that you wanted to emulate you just there's just so much people can take away from that and i'm so grateful for the time that we've shared together here today chef des awesome and i'm grateful for you buddy <laughs> we will um i i'm going to at some point here before the end of the year have you come cook at my house how's that deal Hey, that sounds good. No, I'm that not too far good. from you. Just well, 40 we'll, minutes we'll, up the road. We'll do it on, on a casual basis because I've actually, because of some health issues recently, I've eliminated me doing any in-home cooking uh, moving forward sort of thing. So that's a whole different uh, podcast to get into. So I, I don't do that professionally anymore, but as a friend, you and I, let's do that. Let's do it. We'll get the, we'll get the scotch out. <laughs> All right. I'm All right. there, buddy. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my Self and, of course, my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through. You know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas, and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show. And so I'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through. You know, we don't have ads on the show. I think I don't think Red Circle's running ads, but I wanted to take just a quick second to say that hey, if the spirit moves you, you know, this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I I try and be very diligent that I'm, I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and, and I'd love for you to check them out. One is uh, getting naked, the bare necessities of entrepreneurship and startups. That's my book and you can get it anywhere where books are sold online, like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, that's your shark tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, it has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people 
if you're going through, you know, a startup, need some motivation, need some ideas, just want to feel like, hey, there's a kindred spirit out there, you know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful and inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.